G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupational therapy and occupation. Uh, this episode we're continuing with our monster chat with Sarah Putt and exploring some of the issues that she feels OT is going through in a little more depth. I think we struggle with identity sometimes and that's why we we try and uh you know I don't know, make one up i guess so it's it's really heartening to hear you talk about it as being able to you know i went into this area and it's not my usual area but you know you started with core ot like you started with well what do they need to do what do they want to do and what can we do to get them there like even yeah. if it's not I think even if it wasn't the, you know, 100% evidence-based best practice way of getting there for that particular population, you could probably be quite effective in just doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of one of my favorite stories of when we were in Honduras was this this gentleman came in and he was probably in his probably in his 60s and he was complaining of left knee pain like got the referral left knee pain and we're like okay and so like the the pt like jumped in was doing all these like stretches and all this kind of stuff and i just kind of sat there and i was like why is it only the left right (laughs) like it's not both knees uh there's nothing else bothering him like what's going on and so through our interview and getting kind of the history and everything we learned that his his job was picking up and transporting firewood. And what he would do is go into a half kneel with the left knee down on the ground and the right, the right leg bent to pick up the firewood, then put it on his back, his shoulder, and then take it off. And so he was always putting that left knee down on the ground. And so we didn't have a ton of supplies, but I had brought a couple things down with me. And so, I mean, in the States, you'd think, oh, just go get a knee pad, right? Something as simple as that. Well, we didn't have knee pads and we didn't have any access to knee pads, like even in any of the little stores or where we were. And so I had a pool noodle and duct tape and some rope. Yes, MacGyver. (laughs) That's what they started calling me during the trip. (laughs) Because I was coming up with all of these crazy ways to get the materials and get the supplies that we needed. And yeah, so I like cut up the, the pool noodle and I wrapped it together with the duct tape and then I put the string around it. And the guy was sitting there and he was just like, uh, well, I don't know what this crazy lady is doing. Like we got a pool noodle duct tape. I don't know. And you could tell he was just like, I'm, I'm really unsure about this. And I like motioned to him. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to put it on. And he's still kind of hesitant. And I, I put it on the left knee and he's just like, uh, still no buy-in, right? Going still back hurts. to where it still hurts. <laughs> yeah. And then I said, okay, now put your knee down. And he got in the position of how he typically would work. And he, he had this cowboy hat on. And so I couldn't see his face right away. And then all of a sudden he looked up once he realized what was going on and his smile had just filled the entire room and it was just like, Oh my gosh, I can go back to work. And yeah, he might still have a little bit of pain. I'm sure there's some arthritis and, you know, other stuff going on, but it was, you know, way, way less than it had been. Yeah. yeah. And the the guy was just ecstatic the whole time. Super ecstatic. That's awesome. And I think I see a lot of people pushing in the profession at the moment to bring back like the creativity in it. And a lot of them Mm -hmm. frame that as like arts and crafts. Whereas to me, that is the creativity that the profession's losing because we're relying now on, uh, you know, specialist equipment and that kind of stuff. And we're losing some of that. It's not really common sense, but we're losing some of that you know, ability to MacGyver things for people, you know, we're, right. we're expecting them, I, I guess it might be different in, you know, built up countries, first world countries where, you know, a lot of people can afford, you know, the specialist items or whatever. But 
I still think there's there's room or there's a place for being able to think outside the box and use what's available mm-hmm. to apply to, you know, modifying the occupation or modifying the environment using what's available as opposed to having to, like you said, in America you would have had to go and buy an e-pad or something like that. Whereas, right. you know, you've you've probably helped that dude in what did it take you, thirty seconds to whip that up once you had the materials, like and that's probably more help than he's got in ages in actually fixing that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think too, like the I, I feel like in the States and I'm I'm curious what your take is uh in Australia, but a lot of times with the you know, with the older adults, it's like, well, just you know, don't do that occupation. Just don't, don't do that job anymore. You know, like rather than fix the issue, it's like, oh, we'll just modify it. So you can do this instead of that. Whereas in, you know, specifically in Honduras and other countries, their livelihood is that job. If you tell them they can't do it, they, they can't support their family. And I, I think that that was like my my big draw of like okay like these these people have to continue to do their job so how can we help them continue to do their job to the best of our ability and the least amount of pain and I think uh, I think occupational opportunity in various areas countries states wherever plays a big part in that and I think I. <laughs> I honestly think that OTs often will lean towards the easiest way out. If there's other opportunities Mm -hmm. available and if one of them might happen to be easier to, you know, get the person into, then that's something that, you know, they may apply pressure indirectly or even subconsciously. It might not be a conscious thing. And I think that's where... OTs need to be really self-aware and conscious of the fact that what we tell people quite often is given a lot of, they, they see a lot of importance in the recommendations we make. And we need to really be aware of where those recommendations we're making are coming from. Like, are we recommending this because it's going to be best for the person? When quite often, yes, the hard road might be to get them back to doing what they were doing before, but it might be what's more beneficial. Like similar to what we're talking about with the horse as opposed to a simulation, like there might be more benefit in actually taking that hard road Mm -hmm. and doing a lot more hard work to get back to what they were doing as opposed to replacing it or modifying it, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, we can get back to get people back into doing an occupation quite easily. Yes, we might be able to get them back doing a modified version of that occupation semi-easily. Getting them back to doing that occupation as they were before mm-hmm. could be really, really difficult. Some may say impossible at times. And yes, I granted there are going to be times when it may actually be impossible depending on what you're who you're working with and whether what the injury is, et cetera, et cetera. But there, and that was one of the things I talk about when I talk about things like goals and that kind of stuff is the benefit is often in the journey. And Mm -hmm. by cutting out some of that journey, whether it's like if, if they're, if the person's vision is they just want to get back to doing something sweet, go for it. If they want to do this and you're offering other suggestions, I think we just need to be really careful about how much weight we're putting on the different suggestions because we have the power to be able to sway people, even if it is unconsciously or even slightly against their will. We have that power. Just we're in a position of power and we need to recognize that. And I mm-hmm. think sometimes we we don't or we forget that. Um, I, I I, I, I'm guilty of it. I, I can say, like, I am definitely guilty. I've probably done it more times than I even recognize or remember. You know, oh, yeah, you can do this, but, you know, why don't we do it this way? Right. It's not necessarily we're going to do it this way because it's, you know, better for you or, you know, safer for you or anything. It's just this is going to be easier and you'll actually get to do it. And I think a lot of OTs mm-hmm. would lean towards that purely and simply because they can then see a result. 
We don't mm-hmm. like. We don't or they're like just working. more comfortable doing it. Yeah, exactly. We don't like working one way. Or- we don't like mm-hmm. working or feeling like we're working and working and not seeing any result from the people we work with, even though it's really got bugger all to do with us in the end, which is a really interesting realization when you come to that as a therapist. Is all the effort that you're putting in has got fuck all to do with you. (laughs) It's literally, it's, that's, that's what it's about. It's, it's about the person. And then when you finally, when that clicks, it opens up a whole range of whys, why questions. Why am I doing this? Why did I do that? Why am I leaning this way? Why am I thinking that? And I think when you get to that stage as a therapist, you become a much more self-aware therapist, which, again, I I don't think that's a skill that can be rushed, unfortunately. Like, I think it needs to develop. And I don't, I think there's going to be some therapists where it doesn't. It's just, I mean, it's, we're human. Like, that's the same as anyone. But uh, I think it's it's an important thing to be aware of, even if you don't have that level of self-reflection, because if you're aware of it, then at least you might be moving towards that at some point in your career. But uh, I, I do think it's the best therapists I know are really self-aware. Right. And and continue to kind of push themselves and challenge themselves and not just take everything that they know or they think they know for granted. You know, like right now, you and I have a really good grasp on what we're doing, but we might look back on this conversation in a year, five years, 10 years and be like, holy crap, like, what were we talking about? You know, because I actually all hope sudden, so. Right. Yeah, that, that shows that we've grown, we've changed, we've learned new information, we've integrated new stuff into our awareness and our perception of the world and all of that. So, uh, yeah, I, I hope that later on I look back and I'm like, man, I've come a long way from where I am. I hope it's not too soon because I'd hate to like listen to this next <laughs> week and go, my God, what are you talking about? But what? no, I, I 100% agree. Like I look back on some of the things that I did as a new grad 10 years ago. And I'm like, what are you thinking? Like, why? Mm -hmm. Like, this stuff you... And at the time, that was what was done. And, you know, you did it because you're a new grad and that's what everyone else in the team was doing. So you just, you go along with it. But, like, nowadays, I'm like, again, why? Why was I doing that? Or why did I think that was a good idea? Or where was my... Where was my my perspective of where I fit in that therapeutic relationship. Cause back then I found that or reflecting on it now that I probably put myself in a much higher position than I would now. Like I, I had that very sort of, I'm the therapist, you're the client kind of view when I first graduated. And that was, that was just how my, the teams that I was in operated. And that was, I, the, the the therapists that I worked with initially were all very similar. Now I've been mm-hmm. exposed to a lot more, a lot broader range of people with a lot broader range of ideas. And I'm like, that's, I, and I think back on it, I'm like, why? Like how much better, how much more benefit could I have provided to the people I worked with back then if I thought like I did now? Mm-hmm. And yes, that may be true, but I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be where I am now if I hadn't gone through that. Yeah through some of the volunteer work that I've done, I think that's really kind of opened my eyes a lot. I mean, in in so many ways, but, you know, going back to the root of occupational therapy and occupation, it's, it's very heavily reliant on where you live, your society, your views, all of these things that kind of tie you to who you are So for me to be able, you know, to be working with other people that live in California that have similar views, similar upbringings, all of that, it's it's easy for me to understand and have that awareness of what's going on. Then all of a sudden you go into a different culture, a different location, a different religion, whatever it is, and their occupations are going to be similar, but they're going to be very different as well. And through, through that work that I've done, I, I've, I've had so many days where I've just kind of come home and been like, I know what I would do if I was working with somebody, you know, in California, in the States, but all of a sudden I have to think about it in a completely 
wider lens, you know, a bigger, a bigger scope to understand what all of the factors are that are going on and how I can best help and facilitate that therapeutic environment given the context of where we are. And that was just such a eye-opening thing for me to really experience in, in so many different countries. Do you think it was, because I would imagine similar to myself, if I was working with people that, you know, similar background, similar culture, etc. there's a level of assumption that you just take because you know, you understand, you're part of that sort of background, you have that similar background. So whereas if you're in a completely foreign situation, the assumptions, you, you don't have them. You have to actually explore and find out that information as opposed to being able to draw on some of your previous experience to, I guess, mm -hmm. fill in the gaps kind of thing. Yeah, completely. It's something uh, we were looking at with my students this week was uh, assumptions uh, and then trying to, trying to help them get an under or being able to gain an understanding of their own assumptions uh, mm -hmm. before, say, they go into a clinical situation like you, you know, you get a referral and you, there's information on a referral that will make or will bring up some assumptions. You're going to have an assumption about whatever person before you even get in there. It could be the diagnosis. It could be their name. It could be age, culture, where they live, gender, gender like you're going to have an assumption. You're probably even going to have an image of what that person looks like in your head. And it's important that they're, I'm not saying that's a bad thing because it does serve some purpose because without it, without being able to see a complete picture, our brain struggles and it just struggles to process things. So it fills in the gaps. And then as you learn, you replace that fake information with you know reality. But you don't want that assumption to influence or shade what you're actually going to do with a person. Um, so trying to teach uh, people to be more self-aware has been a really interesting uh, journey for myself because it's something that I've never, I'm quite self-aware and I'm quite emotionally intelligent, but it's something I've never really put a lot of conscious thought into. Like, how did I get this way? Like, what mm -hmm. exactly have I been through? What have I learned uh, that has led me to be able to do this. So actually trying to teach it to someone else is, is quite a, an interesting challenge. <laughs> so yeah. going yeah. through a lecture I've this week about social constructionism and how that may influence, well, essentially how we develop our lenses was what I was trying to get across. So that was, that was an interesting thing. And it was looking very much at primary and secondary socialization, which is, you know, we learn by who we build relationships with. So like you said, you fill in those gaps with, say, when you're working with people from a similar background, from a similar culture, because you're very much socialized into that culture. You're, it, it is part of your you know internal schema of what the world immediately around you looks like. Whereas when mm -hmm. you're taken out of that situation and put in a situation where the world that you recognize inside is very different. You can't rely on that. You need to completely rebuild. And then that sort of gets added to your internal schema of what the world's like. So I think mm -hmm. that's why I encourage people, like, work more than one job. Like, don't, especially when you first graduate, like, try different things. You're going to be a, a better and more well-rounded therapist for it. Yes. And especially, like, yeah. overseas stuff. Like, that's... That's amazing. Like some of the best therapists I know have done that. They've traveled a lot. And granted, that's not accessible to a lot of people. But if you have the opportunity, do it. Right. Yeah. And it, it doesn't have to be expensive, you know, no. and it doesn't have to be like crazy lavish and all this kind of stuff. Like you can literally go with a backpack and head somewhere and, you know, just completely change your, your point of view and your, your lens and, <clears throat> and how you, how you look at things, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know until you know it. <laughs> I have heard that right? before. Yeah. <laughs> I believe Anita told me that. Is that was that where I heard it? Again, possibly. But I, I heard it. Yeah. I heard it on a podcast and I was like, that is 
beautiful. I love it. That would be Anita Hamilton. So there thank you, you for that, Anita. Yeah. Words of wisdom are flowing <laughs> into the States. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> but really, like that, I, when, when I heard it, I was just like, holy shit, like that is so right. Are you taking notes? Yeah. I write things down. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, yeah. Well, because like a lot of times I'll, you'll say something and then I will think of something, but I don't want to interrupt you and I don't want to forget what I want to say. So I'll jot it down. So then I remember what I say later. I can never do that. I don't know why. If I'm, I can't think and write at the same time. So if I'm writing, I'm not listening. My brain just oh. like, my brain can only focus on one thing at a time. Oh no, I'm good. I I got it. <laughs> I think wow, they keep everyone keeps telling us that you know guys can't multitask. So maybe this is just proof. Yeah, um, I feel like with my students, going back to this whole like awareness and assumptions and everything, a lot of times they come in and they want to like read the reports and they want to know about every client and. I guess just over the years and because of how busy and how like we have so much other stuff going on, a lot of times I don't, they don't have the opportunity to read up on the clients before they go meet them. And I've actually found that to be more beneficial where they go in with a blank slate and they have no, or I should say they have, they have a limited preconceived Mm. notion. You know, they're going to have their own assumptions already based on just who they are. Yeah. But they're not reading anything else that's enforced, um, you know, or um, put in front of them, basically. And I think it's really nerve wracking for the students at first because they're like, well, I want to know how old the child is and I want to know their diagnosis and I want to know this and I want to know that. But the feedback that I get towards the end of their internship is I like I'll be like, hey, do you want to read like we got a new kid? Do you want to read their stuff? And they're like, no, I'm just going to go in. And they actually have found more value going in and figuring it out for themselves rather than basing it on a report that somebody else did. See, I have the same theory and some of the best therapeutic relationships that I've ever made have been when I haven't looked at the chart beforehand. Like, yeah, I'll get, you know, some of the important stuff that we need to, like if there's any risks and that kind of stuff, but. I I can still remember it was when I was on placement and I went in and I was working with I started working with a dude um, without looking at his chart got the you know the risk lowdown if I needed to do anything there was nothing there really um, started working with him nicest bloke you'll ever meet did some really cool interventions got some really good progress. And then later found out he'd done time for like some really heinous crimes. So I'm like, I wondered that. And that was like when I was on placement. So I came to that realization quite early about, you know, assumptions and going into the room. Cause I was mm-hmm. like, if I hadn't known that before I went in, how would that have changed? One, how I engaged with him. Two, how I felt even being in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, three, what I would have been open to, you know doing with him that kind of stuff like would i have been comfortable putting him in the car and taking him somewhere uh like how would it have changed and then the ultimate question is would he have got as much out of it out of the therapeutic intervention because no other reason other than i had a bias and i think that it it was an extreme example for my first one (laughs) um but it highlighted for me that well, I actually did a really good therapeutic service. Didn't know, didn't have to know, you mm-hmm. know, some of his probably darker history when he was really unwell kind of thing. Um, so why would I deliver a subpar therapeutic service just to know... You know, some of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. One of the more, I say it's controversial, but some people get their backs up about it that I sort of have always lived by is I can completely do my job without knowing what a person's diagnosis is. I don't need to because I don't right. work with diagnoses. I work with people. 
So I work with people and their occupations and that is never in a diagnosis. It's mm-hmm. not. There's been one reference to an occupational diagnosis, but it's not widely used. Um, I can't even remember who wrote it. It was in Matthew Molinau's book. I can't remember who wrote it. Sylvia, someone. Oh, no, can't remember. I won't say it in case I stuff it up. Um, <laughs> but other than that, like, I don't need to know what their diagnosis is to work with them as an OT. Yes, I can see how that's important for other professions and whatnot, but, and, and you know, chances are in working with them, I'm going to find out what it is anyway because they're going to tell me or I'm going to read it in a chart or whatever it is when I'm writing notes, but I don't Don't need you see it. it. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to go chasing it like, oh, my God, has this person got schizophrenia or bipolar? What's going on? Because then Great. straight away, I know the symptoms, the basic symptoms around those. I know, based on my experience, how people with those diagnoses may present. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go into that relationship, that therapeutic relationship, with a preconceived idea of what I should be expecting to see. Yeah. And it doesn't matter because what I do with them isn't changing based on that. Because what I'm going to see when I get there is what I'm going to see anyway. And that's what I'm working with. I'm not working with how they presented three weeks ago when they were with a completely different therapist. Like that doesn't mean anything to me in that immediate moment. And I know I'm generalizing and someone's going to, I'm sure, (laughs) tell me how wrong I am. And that's okay. I, I respect that. But that's a belief that has done me well for, for quite a few years. Like I said, and I agree. I, yeah, I operate the exact same way. You know, I don't tend to pay too close attention to diagnoses. And granted, a lot of my clientele may or may not have a diagnosis. You know, there are some that will be born with certain things and some that will be diagnosed later on. But I, I don't really care. This is good. I mean, I like, I don't know. I, I like just like bantering back and forth and just talking about OT topics. I don't, I, I don't know. Hey, that's, I love it. That's why, again, I started a podcast. <laughs> no. <laughs> so that way I can just get all sorts of unsuspecting people in here and pepper them with OT related things. I think it's great. I'll sit here all night. <laughs> well, I can't even remember what we're talking about. Um, I was talking, we were talking about diagnoses and how we choose yes. not and you were telling to me, abide You were them. telling me how you don't, you work similar to me and that you don't use them very often. No. No. Like, very rarely will it give me a piece to the puzzle that I should know. But I think in that case, if you know that what piece is missing, then you can go and look for it. Yeah. Like, I don't yeah. think it's something you need. Beforehand. No, no, I, I definitely, I don't think so. I, I think the, you know, the couple times that it's happened where later on I found out a diagnosis or they got diagnosed with something later on, uh, I've kind of sat back and been like, yeah, I knew that. I just hadn't put it into context yet. I hadn't put it into words, but like ultimately I knew that it was presenting like that. And, you know, maybe that is because we can't diagnose and it's not in our scope of practice. And so for me, it's just like, why does it matter what the actual diagnosis is? Because I'm going to look at that client as a person rather than what the diagnosis says. Yeah. I think that's, that's, it ultimately comes back to our, I think anyway, some may disagree as always. That's okay. (laughs) OTs searching for identity and I think I think a big when people think about health and they think about medicine and they think about hospitals and health services diagnoses is like one of those key things that's you know it's up there with you know needles and nurses and doctors and that kind of stuff that it's just one of those mm-hmm. things that I think people associate with a health service so if you're not talking, you know, if you're not using a diagnosis, then are you really part of a health service kind of thing? I think it's hard to, well, I think that's the, that would be my assumption on the general perception of, you know, 
it. Because I know I've talked to a lot of people that are, you know, they've been unwell or something's been going on for a long while, and their whole thing is, if only I knew what it was, if it what what it was, then you know I'd feel better. I'm like, but you're not going to be better. You're just going to have a label. Like I can give you a word. That doesn't make it better. I don't. I don't. I mean, I can kind of understand that thinking, but it, I think OTs. That's why I think OTs continually try and fit into this medical model of using diagnoses or using, you know, really prescriptive type therapies. And that was my one concern, I guess, with the whole, like we talked about right at the start, of like a simulated hippotherapy would be it's going to end up becoming a really prescriptive thing. Like, off you go, go and have a, you know, I prescribe you six sessions on the fake horse kind of thing and your whatever vestibular issues are going to be fixed. It doesn't work like that. It shouldn't work like that. Healthcare in general shouldn't work like that, but it does because everything Mm -hmm. revolves around the dollar. But that's exactly what I was going to go with this. I feel like, unfortunately, it's mainly driven by funding and entities, organizations won't pay for things unless there is a diagnosable reason to, to pay for it. Yeah. Which is... Granted, I'm no expert on economics, but I wonder why. Right. Like, I'm sure I could probably look this up and it would be in some sort of medical history, like history of medicine kind of book, but why would we only fund a diagnosis as opposed to funding an outcome? Well, I guess an outcome, that would be a bit hard to fund. But one of my issues with, and I don't know where I'm going with this, so bear with me. <laughs> this, is me this is me processing things on the fly. Right. Yeah, this is how my brain works. I'm with you. I All got gotcha. you. All over the place. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get through it together. We'll, we'll make it. We'll come back around yeah. full circle eventually. One of, <laughs> one of my peeves... With regards, so we've got uh, like public healthcare, which is probably different to you guys. So essentially free healthcare. Um, I'm sorry, what? What's that? Yeah, exactly. I know. You've never heard of it. (laughs) Fee? Fee? Healthcare? Free. (laughs) No fee. Well, (laughs) for some. Some things there's a small fee. Um, But one Uh of the, so like, you know, a lot of our, Health services are government funded. Like they're fully, you work for the government. It's a it's a government health service, state government mm-hmm. health service that you work for. Um, one of my issues, and it's mainly mental health because I haven't worked in the physical side of it. But one of my issues is that the KPIs that they measure you against are all to do with risk. And I guess from that point of view, it's probably because. It is a, a government-funded thing, so the money is kind of secondary, but the risk is the, the prominent issue for the, the service as a whole. Mm-hmm. The thing that gets me is that there's no KPIs that are based on the outcome for the client. There's no client-based outcome. No out- I can't even speak now. Oh, my God. There's no client-centered outcome measures that are used as KPIs. So you're solely based, so all of our KPIs, so it'd be like, you know, making sure that you visit someone seven days post-discharge, making sure they're seen in the emergency department within four hours. All of Mm -hmm. these KPIs, or making sure that we have uh, full MDT reviews every three months, at least every three months, making sure that someone who's under the mental health act gets seen every two weeks. Like, they're all based on risk. This is what research has determined if they're not seen post-discharge within seven days, that's the high-risk time for readmission. So that's, you know, we'll put in a KPI and make sure they're seen. If people that are waiting in ED for more than four hours, yep, that increases their risk of whatever. Mm-hmm. They're all based on risk. No one from, you know, I guess, the legal team seems to look at, well, what are the, why are we not looking at, like, trying to stop people from getting here in the first place by having some sort of really high-quality services that, you know, have really good client outcomes. Right. And I get that initially that would be 
quite an expensive transition, especially seeing the health services evolve to where it is now. Mm-hmm. But I can't help but think that would be cheaper in the long run. Which brings me full circle to where we were <laughs> because there's, and this is something I was talking with someone the other day about the cost effectiveness of OT. And they believe that OTs working as OTs and providing good, clean, clinical, occupational therapy, so using occupation, was really cost-effective, prevented a lot of readmissions and helped because it was so holistic, helped a lot of comorbidities, you know, from developing or after they'd already developed, you could kind of nail everything down in one. But being able to... But there's not enough research out there to actually back that up and put that to the people that be. So my full circle thing <laughs> was in a service, in a health service, which is very insurance-based and or fee-paying, fee-paying, <laughs> such as yours, uh-huh. <laughs> um, how do we promote OT if we don't have the – or how do we promote OT as – a better option outside of being a medical model profession if we don't have the research to actually say, look how awesome we are, look how much we can save you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Because I guarantee if we had that, and I don't know if anyone's working on it over that way or even here, but if we had that and it actually did show a significant um, benefit, I think in, especially in a fee-paying health service like in the States, OT would go through the roof. So I just don't I don't know why that hasn't been looked at up until now or hasn't been looked at enough detail to be able to lobby for that. Yeah. Something that I kind of come in contact a lot with is and again this this could just be I mean this could be like location specific. There could be other parts of the US that aren't this way. But again, going back to biases and all of this kind of stuff is because we have insurance that should be covering healthcare, a lot of people look at healthcare across the board that somebody else is paying for. It's not their responsibility. And they want things covered rather than saying, I'm going to pay to be healthy. I don't mind paying to be healthy. They're always looking for somebody else to cover that fee. And I, for me, I feel like there's, there needs to be a shift in, you know, people, people wanting to take some of the cost on themselves to pay for things, but that's not going to happen systemically because that's just not how people operate. Hmm. Uh, I've done a lot of like fieldwork educator, uh, continuing educations and that type of stuff. And in one of the ones that I went to, this is kind of going back to the cultural competency. I don't, when they're talking about cultural, like understanding, what is, what's the term that they use in Australia? Just curious. Uh, they will use like it depends where you are. Some will call it cultural safety. Some will call it cultural sensitivity. But yeah, it's the same, similar concept. Yeah. Yeah. So typically in the states, we hear cultural competency, where like to me, it, it kind of sounds like you, you get to, to a be, level you learn and to be you're competent, competent at a certain yeah. culture. But culture is really not a like all or nothing. It kind of ebbs and flows and you could be in, you could have five people in the same culture and they're all going to be different and all this kind of stuff. And so one of the, one of the professors was talking about cultural fluidity. And I just thought that was a really cool way to think about it where it, it, it is, it's going to ebb and flow based on where you live, based on who is a part of that person's life, what their assumptions, what their biases are, what their experience is, and that you have to learn what your own biases and, and your lens, and then be able to move 
throughout working with different cultures, different clients, different family, you know, all of this kind of stuff. That's interesting. I, I can definitely see that cultural competency, it kind of makes it sound very absolute, very objective. Yeah. And it's, I think it doesn't work like that. Um, cultural fluidity. I, my initial reaction is I like it better than cultural competency. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I wonder, like, I wonder what the point of the concept is on terms of someone from outside of that culture. Like, I get, I understand that cultures fluid to a degree i think there's always like is this it's cultures essentially you know shared values shared beliefs and i think some of those really core ones probably don't change a lot they might change a little bit in how they're interpreted individual to individual and coming from outside of that background we may interpret them way off to what they or how they're meant to be um mm -hmm. understood from people within that culture fluidity to me, kind of indicates that the like the whole thing can change. Like you can, I don't know. I I, I, I see how you, I see how you took that. Yeah, I, I how it's, how do you take it? My my lens was more coming from the therapist mm -hmm. working with different individuals, and that we have to be fluid in terms of understanding where we're coming from and then accepting where everybody else is rather than just being like, well, I know that you're this culture. I'm yeah. competent in that yeah. culture. I get it. Okay. That it's makes like, more sense. You might be on the far end of that culture, you know, or in a, a different, a, a different kind of box of it that you have to learn to just kind of be okay with, trying to learn more and trying to understand more and that you don't just get to a level and you're good to go. You have to constantly progress, move forward and learn from it. So it's more around the the therapist being culturally fluid. Yes. Okay, that makes that yeah. makes a lot more sense to me. <laughs> I can I can get behind that. Um I think it's how do you teach that though? That's I think it's all well and good to identify that as a concept. And I think my, I mean, I don't, it's not impossible, but I, I, I think it's really difficult to teach that in a classroom. I, yeah, I think I it think is. it's one of those things that you have to experience. Like you have to put yourself, immerse yourself in a different culture that is like, it's no use to me going to America because cultures are going to be, yeah, they're different, but they're not that different. Right. Like, I can easily pull a lot of similarities. Whereas if you go and immerse yourself in a culture that is a completely different culture to the one that you're, you know, from than that you grew up in, I mm -hmm. think that's where you're going to really notice even just how a culture might be structured, like at its core could be very different, how they view the world. And I think that's one of the things that I learned uh, interacting with Dr. Michael Awama uh, and using the Kawa model is mm -hmm. mainly through the story of how that model developed was the fact that I think in my head I'd never considered the fact – I'd always considered the fact that other cultures were essentially just labeling things differently, kind of like other languages. Like this is the same thing. It's just called something different. And until I really started to delve into Kawa and, you know, talk to Michael about it in a bit more detail was when I really started, well, when I really found out that people from different cultures don't even necessarily look at the world in the same way. And kind of being a bit more critical about how we look at the world from a Western culture with regards to occupation Again, it wasn't something I'd ever looked at because I didn't know there was a need to, but being able to do that has helped me be more culturally fluid, I guess. Um, and the example he 
he gives is around occupation and looking at, at it from like a PEO kind of model in that from a Western culture, we have the person, we have the environment, and the occupation is the person enacting themselves on that environment. It's what happens, the interaction between the two. That is what occupation is. His example, and when he was sort of developing the car wire in Japan, was the traditional Japanese culture don't know how to separate those three things. So they're seen as symbiotic in a way in that you change one, it's going to affect the other two. You change two, it's going to affect the other one. And being able to, even just that, and he had little diagrams like showing it, how it views and whatever. I still remember his little drawing of a tree. Um, <laughs> but even just the fact that they view, like they, they his his point in trying to show me that was they don't have a concept of occupation. Like it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. because they view the world that everything is sort of symbiotic, there's no space in between that the person can interact or enact themselves on the environment. Like it doesn't, it's a very different way of viewing the world that changes how OT would actually operate. And I think- I don't even know where to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think getting an understanding of that was when I started going, okay, so there's a lot more to this whole culture thing than, you know, you speak another language and these are the foods you eat. Like, it's, which is probably, I still think, what most people's view of other cultures would be, which is why mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of intolerance in the world about, you know, people that are from differing cultures and even people's views uh, that don't necessarily line up with, you know, Western views. There might be around views on women, views on, um, you know, kids going to school, that kind of stuff, Any anything really that's different from a Western view. We find it offensive and we find it, you know, not right and they shouldn't be doing this. But when you look at how they view the world or even how that culture develops, you kind of get a better understanding of like, well, hey, yeah, okay, we might still see and there's nothing wrong with us seeing it as wrong or different or offensive, but here's an understanding of why it's like that, you know? It's, this didn't happen overnight. They didn't migrate from America or Australia and go, you know what, women aren't allowed to drive. Like, it didn't <laughs> just happen. Like, it started from somewhere and it evolved. And I think... Obviously, extreme example, but the people we work with, Australia is a very multicultural place. Like, if we, especially if you work in a capital city, every person you see could be from a different background. They could be refugees, they could be, you know, migrants, they could be, have, you know, second, third generation migrants. Everyone, there's so many different sort of backgrounds, cultures in Australia. And I'd imagine, especially in certain parts of America, it'd be the same. Mm hmm. So being able to realize that, I guess, the, the depth of what culture actually is, is a massive thing that therapists really need in their, their arsenal. They need to be able to see that, you know, it's, it's not just, you know, food and language. Like it's mm -hmm. it's how someone at their absolute core might view the world, including how they view you as a health service, as a representative of whatever health service. Even if you're not, that may be how you're viewed. Yeah, that's <laughs> so such so, so deep here. I like. I know we've 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 we're off the deep end now. We're down the rabbit hole. Let's go. <laughs> We've talked about healthcare. We've talked about biases. Now we're talking about culture, like whatever. We Just throw, throw it all out there. Fix the world one conversation <laughs> at a time, yes. as Anita would say. I love it. I love it. Um, but yeah, there, there is. I, I, I think just the bottom line is you'll never be able to know everything about every culture. And but I think that's the issue, though, is I think that's where cultural competency is headed. It's teach, because I know in Australia, so we have 
a, I can't even remember what it's called now, but essentially it's a course for, in my state anyway, in the government health service that teaches you how to work with Indigenous Australians. And I think that's the issue, is that it's specifically trying to teach you how to work with a specific people and giving specific recommendations for working with these people as opposed to teaching people how to be more culturally fluid. And, you know, I think the cultural fluid thing from how you've explained it is probably going to be, would, would be the best way of doing it in that. And it, I don't know how to say, I'm getting all choked up now because I'm struggling for words, but I, I see it as similar to me not needing a diagnosis. Like if I go into an interaction with someone completely, like if it was humanly possible to go into a reaction completely unbiased by absolutely anything, what would what sort of questions would I ask? What would I need to know? And how people view the world would probably be pretty high up there in how I need to know things on what I need to know. Whereas, like you said earlier about, you know, there's some assumptions that you go in with when you know that, you know, there's a similar culture to you or a culture that you might even feel like you're familiar with. You might go in with certain things that you've already filled in the gaps. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, where mistakes can be made when we filled in the gap but it's not filled in with the right information because you know yes this person might be from a similar culture but they're very different how they view the world their experiences their lenses it's all very different Mm -hmm. to deliver i guess an optimal healthcare solution for people like a holistic one we would need to really get to know them individually and then that presents another problem again back around to funding (laughs) (laughs) Because no one is going to fund the amount of time that it takes to do that. So we're kind of caught in this catch-22 where we know we, we want to deliver the, you know, gold standard absolute best health service, can't get funding to do it, can get funding for this much of it. So... We're going to deliver the gold standard substandard service that we don't want to be delivering because we want to be delivering more. And I think one of the challenges for the profession is how do we widen that little tiny narrow bit of things that we're funded for? How do we widen that? How do we open up the space for OTs to be able to operate in? That's a good question. <laughs> the only kind I ask. <laughs> right? I'm like, I don't, I don't know if there's one right answer for it. No, I don't think there is. Otherwise, we'd already have answered it. Right? But I think, I think like what we we're talking about before with on terms of trying to prove that OTs are actually really cost-effective long-term. So mm-hmm. short-term, it might not seem that. But long-term... Healthcare costs, which would be really hard to prove. Um, I, I, OTs, I, I, everyone, OTs believe anyway. Self-reported, very cost-effective. <laughs> right. We kind of we we're gonna need more proof if we want to actually open up that sort of that that area that we're allowed to practice in to be able to provide the service that theoretically we're very, very well equipped and very well capable of delivering Mm -hmm. as a profession. I think we've got some work to do. Oh, we, (laughs) I think we've just opened up a wormhole. (laughs) Right. There's no way of fixing it. But again, I think it's something that like a lot of things, I think the discussions need to be had, like, you know, Mm -hmm. We've just, you know, torn the health system apart in the couple of hours that we've been <laughs> chatting. And that's that's literally all we've been doing is just chatting. But I think right. these conversations need to happen and it's, it's good that they are. I mean, it's good that we can have them. We're on opposite sides of the planet at opposite mm-hmm. times of the day. I think we're actually on in two different days at the moment. It's Monday for you, isn't it? 
It is Monday. Yeah. yeah. See, I'm in the future. It's Monday Tuesday night. here. <laughs> How does it feel? It's very futuristic. Did you know you were going to be doing this? No, I didn't. <laughs> but I feel like I feel like one of our common themes for this entire chat has been like coming full circle. And this literally goes back to like why I am starting a podcast, why you started a podcast is to have these discussions, to get these words, get these concepts, get these ideas out to other people. And, you know, hopefully inspire other people to say, you know what, these guys, they're full of it. I disagree with what they're saying. I would think it's my way or, you know, wait, they think that I agree, like, and, and really try to band together and, and create some change and, and just get out there. Hmm. And I think that's a big thing, the, the advocacy and, and really just promoting our profession, what we can do, who we are, all of that is just so necessary. And I think, yeah, I think you're right. And it's, it's not necessarily a matter of like, I'm not trying to convince anyone of anything with any of these podcasts, even the ones where it's just me. Um, having a rant about something that annoys me, but uh, and and like I've got only really one sort of heated slash negative feedback, and that was on Reddit a little while ago, and it was about a podcast I did about smart goals, and the person very adamantly I knew it. <laughs> the person very adamantly uh, opposed my view. Hadn't actually listened to the podcast, I might add, but opposed the view based on the title. Um. And th- but that was okay. I'm like that that doesn't phase me. But I would have preferred if they'd listened to it and then given me some feedback. But I'm not expecting everyone to agree. And I I I'm a kind of a hobbyist social scientist. I will quite often in real life as well as online throw things out that I know are gonna rustle a few jimmies and just to make people think. Like I'm not. I'm not even saying that it's 100% my view and this is how I view the world, but this is a situation that's come up kind of thing. And what do you guys think about it? Because quite often these discussions that go untold also go unthought about. Mm-hmm. So by throwing it out there and making it very public and making people even just think about it, I don't care if they don't want to have the discussion, but th- Think about it. Like you said, see where it fits with what you already know. See if you agree. See if you disagree. Reflect. Why do you disagree? Why do you agree? Like, what's the worst that could happen by spending five minutes thinking about a concept? You've wasted five minutes. Right. Well, waste, quote unquote. I I don't know. That's the, the absolute worst that might happen by doing it. Yeah. Whereas the potential benefits of spending five minutes and actually having a bit of self-reflection develop even just you spent five minutes developing the skill of self-reflection. That's something if nothing else, but you may open up a whole new world of things that, you know, down the track you want to continue looking at like, okay, they talked about this. I haven't really thought about that before. Maybe I should look into it more. Maybe I'll get in contact with these guys and see what, you know, have a start a discussion, start a dialogue. And I've already said on this podcast, I'm more than happy for people to email me. And I have had quite a few people email me about um, different topics and different different people that I've had on here and things that they might have said and that kind of stuff. I'm more than happy to open up that dialogue. And if there's enough material in it, I'll do another podcast on it. Like that's, that's yeah. how these discussions, you know, evolve and how they happen. And I think- Let's not just take everything for granted. Yeah, and be told it, and say, "Well, then that's the way it is." And that's one thing I've been I've been sort of beating my students with, metaphorically, was (laughs) metaphorically. (laughs) I will stipulate that was that there's a lot of things that I've probably taught them this semester. Uh, I'm teaching a mental health subject this semester, and a lot of stuff I've taught them that they probably just went, "Yeah, duh," but. It's stuff that they may have just taken for granted previously. Like the fact that loud noises make you cover your ears. Like weird little things like that when we're looking at sensory mod. Like there are certain kind of music that you like that other people won't like and vice versa. Things like mm-hmm. that. But 
actually putting them in the space and making them think about it is where the learning happens. And then obviously reflecting on it and seeing, well, why is that? Why? Always ask the why. So is this at all where you thought we were going to go with this conversation? I never, <laughs> I never, I, well, I try never to dictate where it goes. I just, I like seeing where it goes. That went a mm-hmm. lot further than I thought it would, which I fucking, yeah. which I loved. Because um, <laughs> I love that real deep sort of conversations. I was actually having a read of, um, I didn't realize they were there, but there's a couple of like, um, feedback things on iTunes that I found the other day, and one of them was like, "I know who I know who she is, but <laughs> Jody, because um, she sent me a message after one of the after listening to one of the podcasts saying it was that it was like when you go to a conference and then after the conference you go to a bar with a few people and you have those really deep conversations. She was like, it was like you two were just doing that." Right. But then she's gone and written it on iTunes. I'm like, okay, cool. Thanks, Jody. <laughs> Appreciate it. But and that's that's what it's like. And I like I don't I don't want I mean there's some people that come like on here to talk about specific things, and that's fine. But even them, uh, I leave it very generalized because if people want to talk about that, the conversation's gonna migrate there anyway. Mm-hmm. I just like to chat. That's okay. Me too. I I like I like diving deep into topics like this because mm. I again I think they just need to be discussed and I, I think it's interesting connecting with like minded individuals but also have different perspectives yeah and to come at it with different experiences and different exposure and be like hey okay I might not agree with everything that you say but like yeah make you think about it because i like i literally remember listening to the post about the smart goals and i was like "Ooh, this is going to be controversial just because that's <laughs> what it's got and I, again i came into it kind of like eh, let's see what's going on and during it i was just like yeah i i get it i i see exactly where you're coming from and i think that's i mean that's that was uh that particular one had a, a fair bit of passion behind it for me because it's <laughs> something that really irks me. Um, and it doesn't irk me from the from the point of view of like smart goals themselves. It irks me that people, like similar to what we've been talking about here, it irks me that people will just take it for granted that goals, smart goals, they don't know yeah. any other kinds. Whereas I, I can almost guarantee if people knew one or even two other methods of setting goals, smart goals wouldn't even be remotely looked at mm-hmm. for healthcare settings. Because there's mm-hmm. others that are better. Yes, they, they do serve a purpose for some some settings, but my issue is that that's the only one most people know. And I'm like, how can you make an informed decision or even say if you were working with a client and you only knew one way, one piece of therapy, like how would you work with a whole range of different people with different needs, different cultures, different views, if you only knew one way of doing things? It's the same thing for goals. It just annoys me that that's the only way people are taught. Got on my soapbox again. That was fun. I very, I very, very fun. much enjoyed that. Yeah. I'm like, I, I have all these ideas just floating. Good, write them floating down. around that I have to go marinate on. <laughs> Was it OT for life? OT number four, L Y F E, and available iTunes, Google Play, Google Podcast now, Stitcher, Podbean, all of those other fun places. Pretty much anywhere you can find occupied. You will also find OT for Life. I'll be there. And the 8 million episodes that she has currently recorded and will gradually release over time as I peer bully her into doing so. <laughs> Just push me to do it. That's right. You can go right now, search OT for Life and start listening to Sarah's podcast. Yeah. And give me feedback. Let and me know what feedback. you think. 
yeah. positive, constructive view. At least listen to the podcast before you give the feedback, though. Hopefully, yes. Yes, that's much more constructive. <laughs> Gives you a little something to go on. Yeah. On both ends. <laughs> Base your opinions on fact. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you very, very much for indulging me for an extremely long time this evening after you've had a long day at work. And uh, we will talk very, very soon. Sounds good. And I, I could keep talking all night. This is, I love talking about occupational therapy and everything in between. So thank you for having me. His pleasure is all mine.